Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Uh, today we're going to continue uh, our sermon called The Way, and what we pick up on is last week was Easter. I don't know if you remember that. Last week was Easter. We talked about the prodigal son, and this wayward son, and then the other son. And, and so last week, we, we sort of heard this story of this abundant grace of the Father. And Jesus continues on his journey, and this week he tells a very different story, and one that I would say is mostly passed over uh, by preachers and Christians of all stripes. Is This is a story that is, is complicated and is often gone, you know what, I don't quite know what that's trying to tell us, and so I'm just going to skip it, and uh, we're not going to skip it. And so if you have a Bible, and it's, it has a heading, some Bibles have headings before stories, and this one is either called the crooked manager or the shrewd manager. Uh, Eugene Peterson calls this story the rascal. Um, and so we're going to get into the rascal and see what it means for us because um, it's in here for a reason. We don't, we don't need to skip it. Let's keep going. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a manager. He got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? You're fired. And I want a complete audit of your books. The manager then said to himself, what am I going to do? I've lost my job as a manager. I'm not strong enough for a laboring job. I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I've got a plan. Here's what I'll do. And then he doesn't tell us what it is. This is what, like, my favorite part of the story. Like, Here's what I'll do. And we're like, what is it? And then he says this. Then when I'm turned out into the street, people will take me into their houses. So we want to know what the plan is. Then uh, he went at it, this, this manager. One after another, he called in the people who were in debt to his master, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he replied, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And so the manager said, take your bill, sit down, quick now, write 50. And to the next, he said, what do you owe? And he answered, a hundred sacks of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write in 80. Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And Why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. Jesus says, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you will live, really live, and not complacently get by on good behavior. Like I said, people avoid this story. Because as soon as it starts making sense, it starts not making sense anymore. How do we make sense of Jesus seemingly approving of lying, crooked behavior? Is he saying, is Jesus saying that we should be crooked or deceitful if it gets the job done? Is he saying that the ends justify the means? Let's look a little closer. Don't miss, again, the reason I, I started by saying we just got done with the prodigal son is you don't need to miss that we just got done with the prodigal son. And so if we've had the prodigal son story where this story of incredible abundant grace then what we get to do is put this on the other end of that and watch them balance each other out. And so the prodigal son was entirely and utterly reliant on the grace of the father to welcome him home. What we're going to see is that the shrewd manager, the crooked manager, the rascal, was entirely reliant and utterly reliant on the mercy of the master to bring him through the situation. 
So he's been fired. And now we're going to do a little bit of biblical speculation. And this is not my speculation. Kenneth Bailey is um, a first century scholar, a Jewish scholar, and a New Testament scholar. Um, Maybe you've heard of N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is kind of like maybe the most prominent New Testament scholar alive today. N.T. Wright calls Kenneth Bailey, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, eyes to the blind. So when it comes to these difficult parables, these difficult stories, N.T. Wright says, this is the guy I read. And so we're going to go to Kenneth Bailey and see how he explains it. Because what, it, it's important for us to understand the context and to understand where we're going. And Bailey says what we're dealing with here in the first century world is what's called a rental estate. So somebody owns a bunch of land. It's got olive groves and it's got fields. It's got all the different things. And it's a rental estate. And then the owner doesn't really want to do all the work. So he brings in farmers, itinerant laborers, people who want to manage different plots. And so one will manage the olive oil you know, area, one will manage the wheat, and one will manage the... And they'll, they'll just kind of manage the whole thing, and then the owner sits back and just takes the profit. It's like if you owned a shopping center today. You own the shopping center, and then people pay you money to come in and use the building. They run whatever business they want to run out of it, and then you just collect rent. And this is kind of what's happening. The crooked manager is then filed for what looks like embezzlement. And, and just note, when he gets fired, he doesn't get scolded. He doesn't get put in jail, which would have been the right punishment. He's just fired. And then he's asked for his books. He's fired and then said, give me an audit. And so Bailey says, the manager has experienced two unique aspects of the master's nature. And this is something that I missed. And I read it, you know, sometimes I feel simple when I read these scholars and the things that they're able to extract out with all their knowledge. Two, mas- two aspects of the master's nature. One, he expects obedience, the master does. And he acts in judgment to the disobedient servant. Okay, that's a good reflection of our master. Expects obedience and will act in judgment when disobedience occurs. But the other thing that you would note is that he has unusual mercy and generosity to the dishonest manager, meaning that a major offense has been quietly dealt with. A major offense has been, has been just sort of gently managed. So let's get to the manager's perspective. First, he's fired And this is going to eventually discredit him when news gets out about what he's done. When the word spreads, why isn't he managing it anymore? Well, this is going to discredit him in the future. He's going to be found out. And so he starts to think, what can I do to cover myself? What can I do to take care of myself along the way? Too weak to dig ditches. Too proud to beg. I'm not going to be able to get rehired because my reputation will be in shambles once the world hears about this one. And he says, ah, here's what I'll do. And as the tension builds, we see the plan unfold. It's this classic nothing-to-lose scenario. What's he got to lose? He's already been fired. His reputation's going to be in shambles. What? He's going to look worse? Think he's done. So what does he do? He comes up with his plan, and he starts cutting deals. He starts cutting deals with the people who are managing the different plots of land. And think about it. You have to really get in their heads. They're being brought in. He calls them in, and they're being brought in thinking that the owner of all of this, the master, must be in a good mood. The manager's just acting on his authority. And so when he's told, hey, cut a deal, hey, 50, 100, pay 50, but do it quick. You know, he's kind of panicking a little bit because if word gets out before he gets the deals done, the whole, the whole plan's ruined. So he has him quickly cut his bill in half. And that manager uh, of that plot walks away like, yeah, that's a good deal. What a generous landowner we have. And the next one comes in and he goes from 100 to 80 and he says the same thing. Wow, okay, my lucky day. And and what this shrewd manager, the crooked manager is doing is he's relying on the benevolence of the master's reputation in order to cut deals with people before news of his firing gets out. 
He's got nothing to lose. If it succeeds, he'll be a hero to the farmers in the community who he got a great deal for, and he'll make his master look like even more of a generous man. If he fails, he's still resting on the mercy of the master to either release him from it entirely, I'm done with you, or to put him in jail, which he earned the first time anyway, so what does he have to lose there? His plan is only possible, though, because of the mercy of the master. He's totally reliant on the mercy of the master. So either he's going to get what he deserved all along, which is a long time coming, and he made a couple deals before he got there anyway, or he's going to get away with the whole thing because he was shrewd and clever, and his master is ultimately benevolent and merciful. The quality of the shrewd manager's plan is a bet on the benevolence of the master. Interesting. He says, write quickly. Hurry before word gets out. Write quickly. They don't know. Why? Okay, whatever. Imagine you got called in. You owe you know, money on your car. You owe money on your house. Whatever you owe money on. And, and the lender calls you into the office. Yeah, oh, you just need you to come in. Wear a mask. Don't. I don't care. Just hurry. And you come in and, and you owe $150,000 on your house. And they go, write 75. Sign this quick. Are you going to say no? You're going to go, wow, the bank really had a good week. Uh, yes, I will take it. This is like the ultimate refinance. I didn't do anything. You're, you're just going to say yes. So he's saying, right, quickly, hurry. Let's get it done. And so then the scheme is unveiled, and we get to see that sort of happening. The scheme gets unveiled, and the master surveys the field. Think about this. The master looks around at what's just happened. Cut that deal in half. 80% over here. Huh. And the master goes, all right. I'm impressed. Good job. I see what you did there. Got yourself out of trouble, earned favor with area businessmen, and you bumped my reputation along the way. All right, I'll take it. And, and that's where the story kind of ends. And we go, oh, so the crooked, deceptive behavior was applauded. Living with nothing And living with nothing to lose changed the whole story. None of this happens if he's not fired and has nothing left to lose. So what happens is our shrewd manager, this rascal, is living with nothing to lose. And because he's living with nothing to lose, all of a sudden it frees him up to actually make real gains in his life. He takes the reins off of all of his ideas that are hemmed in by the guidelines and the protections. And he just starts making deals because he has nothing left to lose. And as a result, he starts actually making gains. You may know that Michael Scott from The Office once said, that Wayne Gretzky once said, that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. If you'll notice, I now said that Michael Scott once said that Wayne Gretzky once said that. So that's a pretty good quote of mine. That is called Inception. That's a joke within a joke within a joke. Um, Wayne Gretzky is kind of unquestionably the greatest hockey player ever. And he said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. He knew you couldn't score without taking a shot. You can't score unless you attempt to score. So Wayne Gretzky, that's great. I know a little bit about hockey. I've been to a few hockey games. Not really my thing. Basketball is my thing. Michael Jordan. Ever heard of him, Michael Jordan? This shot uh, you're looking at here was taken on May 7th, 1989, in the great state of Ohio, when Michael Jordan... Uh, he made the shot. It's literally called the shot. I'm not, this is not like hyperbole. If you go to Wikipedia and you put in the shot, this comes up. It's widely thought of one of the most clutch, greatest shots in the history of basketball. Deciding game of a series. 
Michael Jordan takes the ball, double clutches, seems to hang in the air for four or five minutes. Poor Craig Elo, you can see poor Craig Elo about eight feet below Michael Jordan in the picture. He's playing as good a defense as you can play, and they're still looking for him. We can't find him anywhere because the ball goes in, and the legacy begins of Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. And anybody with a LeBron James angle on that can just take a walk, go pound sand. Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. <laughs> it's not up for debate. It's in here somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you about Michael Jordan. This Michael Jordan you see, this great covered in glory athlete, Michael Jordan missed 12,000 shots. That's a lot of shots. He missed 2,200 more shots in the playoffs. He lost over 400 games, and he missed the game-winning shot 26 times. So 26 times, he did that exact same kind of move at the exact same time of a game, and it rimmed out, and his team lost, and they walked off the floor dejected. Missed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of shots. And he's the greatest of all time. Unprecedented domination over the course of a decade. He buried one rival after another because he just kept shooting because he had the confidence to know that even if he starts one of 10, who's to say he's not going to make the next 20? Jordan and Gretzky had something that coaches will call the green light. They had a green light. They were given a green light by the coach, which is to say, just keep shooting. There's no uh, hesitation involved. When you get the green light, you just keep firing them up. If you're having a bad day, the only way to get out of a shooting slump is to shoot your way out of it, they would say. So take another shot. Did you miss? Shoot it again. See, mediocre players are afraid of missing because they're lacking confidence and afraid of being pulled from the game. They're afraid if they miss too many shots, the coach will pull them. But any coach will tell you if the right player takes the right shot at the right spot and they're just not going in, more often than not, they get the benefit of the doubt. They just keep shooting. If you're taking the right shot, eventually it's going to go. And there's a reason you're playing. Keep shooting. The great ones just keep shooting. And eventually the great ones make them. And this is what this parable, along with the prodigal, is inviting us into. I believe that these two parables, when you put them together, these two stories, when you look up in the Bible, what they're inviting us into is what I will call green light living. That you've been invited to take your shot. You've been invited to rest on the grace and the mercy of God, on the goodness and the benevolence of God, and to begin to take your shot with life. And when you miss, you're invited to shoot again. And if you miss again, you're invited to shoot again. Why? Because we have a God who is gracious and merciful. And when you fail, he doesn't say, you sidelines. He says, shoot it again. We're not being invited to waste God's resources on a wild weekend in Vegas like the prodigal. That's not what I'm saying. We're not being invited to be deceitful and, and make bad business deals and trick people out of money like the shrewd manager. Not what I'm saying. What we are being invited into is to rest on the grace and the mercy of God and then take our shot with green light living. We're being invited to get creative about the way we do good in the kingdom, to break out of the rules and the guidelines and the structures and the strictures that you feel and to break into something greater. We're being invited to take chances and to use the green light we've been given to trust God as our ultimate safety net. So that if our best efforts fail, if our strategies fall short, if our ideas come up empty, if we miss the game winner, God's got this. His ultimate plan is not reliant on you and I getting it right every time. Did you know that? 
Do you feel freedom in that? God's plan is not reliant on you and I getting it right every time. His plan for you is reliant on you staying in the game, on you shooting again, on you getting up again, on you trying again. You have a green light from God, and he's got you. Read the scripture again. When Jesus explains the story, he says, I want you to be smart in the same way as the rascal, as this crooked manager. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you will live. You will really live. Not complacently just get by on good behavior. Jesus is instructing us to take on the shrewdness of that crooked manager and apply it to good things. Find an angle. Work a side deal. Do what you have to do to move forward the kingdom of God, to take your shot. The religious and the rule followers are so afraid of making a mistake that they never make an impact. He's talking to the Pharisees, these great rule followers. They know their scripture. They're doing the right thing. They're trying their best. And he's telling them, you are so afraid of breaking a rule that you're never going to make an impact. You want to get by on good behavior, but you never break through. Too many Christians spend their lives sitting at a green light at an intersection, afraid to hit the gas pedal in case the light were to turn yellow. Can you imagine? Car behind you would be, and yet there we are. I'm, it might, it's been green for a while. It could go yellow any second, and it's probably safer to sit, and that way when it's yellow, I'm not like, you know, in between, because I don't know what the law is. We had this argument. Everybody's had the argument. Is it, are you, do you run the red light? Are you, I was in the intersection when it was yellow. Well, does that, does that count? I don't know. And so we just go, it's a lot of complications, a lot of rules here. I'm just going to sit back, and we'll wait for the next cycle. When it goes green again, maybe then I'll go. But we don't. We sit. Maybe my uh, favorite example of this is from the rule follower in life I love the most. My wife is an, a rule follower. Black and white, lots of rules. She follows them. She doesn't like to break them. She met me and thought I was probably the worst heathen ever because I was like, what is a rule? What are you talking about? And we, it's perfect, puzzle pieces, right? So in uh, 2004, I meet this woman named Beauty. I'm going to put a picture of her and my wife together. I meet this woman before I'd ever met my wife. I meet this woman named Beauty. She's cleaning the church in South Africa that I'm working in. She cleans the church. She has a newborn baby. The baby's on her back with a blanket all day, and she cleans the church. Once a week, she comes in top to bottom, never complains, not making much money, and her name is Beauty. And I'm like, well, of course your name is Beauty. You're incredible. I meet her children. We get to know her. She's just like pure gold. So we move, my wife and I, I get married, my wife and I move to South Africa to be missionaries, and we go back to the exact same church, we're working, doing the same things, and she gets to meet Beauty, and they were just best friends in an instant. And we'd only been there a couple weeks, and this is one of those stories, I wrote a book last year, a couple years ago, about all these South African stories. This is one I, I actually pulled. This was too personal, it was too intimate, it was actually too hard, it didn't really fit all the other kind of hijinks we went through. Beauty comes into our office at this tiny inner city church in the city of 10 million, just abject poverty everywhere you look. And she lives in the local squatter camp, which is uh, 10 shacks, one after another. Thousands of people on an acre in 10 shacks. No running water, none of it. She comes in, she goes, my friends, and she breaks. She's weeping. She can't even get the words out. Steph goes to pick her up off the floor, and she barely whispers that I am positive. 
And it's 2007 in South Africa, which means she's just gotten her results from her HIV test. And it's a death sentence. Total death sentence. Drugs are impossible to come by. They're super expensive. And beauty comes and says, it's over for me. And before we leave that office and she's weeping, she makes us agree to take her children. That's, that's how sure she was that it was over. She's got four children. And she goes, they're yours. You have to take care of them. Okay. Things got real. And Steph has a love for this woman. She goes, we are getting you medicine. This isn't the end. But the system is not set up well. The system is not set up uh, efficiently. It's not set up equitably. And so this uh, incredibly poor woman and this outsider American who has no right to be anywhere, they queue up at the hospital. The hospitals are kind of, you know, ramshackle. And, and the way it works, if you want to be seen for your HIV or to be possibly put on a list to get medicine, is you line up 4 or 5 a.m., like a new iPhone, except, you know, life. And at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., you line up outside the hospital and you wait, and they call in one person at a time. And the line can be hundreds or even thousands of people long, and eventually there's a point at which they say, everybody else go home, try again tomorrow. And they get through a few dozen. And Steph says, that's fine. What else are we going to do? Let's go. And so we're living in this most dangerous city on earth, and I would go, and we'd drive the, the church van at 5 a.m. down to the hospital. Steph would get in line with beauty in the line. I would stay in the van because if you leave one of these vans, it's stolen. It's just gone. You might as well leave the keys in it and put a bow on it. And so I'd sit in the van all day, usually watching multiple of her children in the van, which is like the greatest daycare you've ever seen. And they would wait in line. And one too many times they got turned away. And my rule-following wife, Started practicing green light living. She's like, I'm going to take my shot. So she started fighting her way through the, no, I'm sorry, we're done here. She started walking up to the, when everybody else is walking away, she goes, no, 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 we're, we're getting in, and she's getting medicine. And she gained a reputation for fighting her way through these things, eventually getting thrown out of the hospital multiple times because she wouldn't take no for an answer. And beauty got her medicine. And beauty's still alive. And beauty will call us. Beauty says, my sister. And Beauty's baby that was on her back when I met her is 18. Because somebody saw fit to break a rule, somebody saw fit to say, I don't care what the rules are. I'm going to just practice green light living. I'm going to break through the barrier. I'm going to go through the line. I'm going to walk into the office of the manager, and I'm going to say what I want. And yeah, I'm going to get thrown out today. And yeah, I'm going to get thrown out tomorrow. But eventually you're going to listen. And as a result, ministry gets done. And as a result, a family is still whole. And as a result, life continues. And the question for you is, what is God inviting you into that you're waiting at the intersection in case that light were to turn yellow? Jesus has released you from the strictures of playing it safe. Did you know that? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has released you from any semblance of a life where you are now forced to play it safe. you got to stay in the rules. you got to keep in his good graces. His good graces extend so far beyond what you can imagine. So has God given you a dream in your life? Has God given you a people to care about? Has God given you a neighbor that you're supposed to love? Has God given you a ministry? What has God given you to dream and to do? Because he dropped something on your heart beyond what you think you can do, beyond what you can imagine is, is possible or real. Has God given you something, a green light? 
And I get it. Going outside the rules is scary. Breaking convention can feel dicey. Starting something new, nobody wants to fail. I get it. New career, new calling, something new with your family, something new financially. The only way to know if the time is right to act on the dream that God has given you is to take your shot. Just take your shot. To rest on the goodness and the benevolence of God and to take your shot. To get creative and, like Jesus said, to start living, really living. Not this living by the numbers kind of thing, although there is a place for rules. There's a place for doing things rightly. But maybe color outside the lines on occasion and just see what happens. And I've said things like this before in a church, and I got dozens of emails the next day with all great ministry ideas, great ones. And I'm going to tell you, if you send me your ministry idea, I'm going to send it right back to you. It's your ministry idea. It's your calling. You're the church. You're God's ministers. Sent out ones. You're God's missionaries into the culture. You're the ones that God has given this burden. When I say, has God given you a dream? 95% of the people in this room go, I think I might know what that is. I think I might know what that is. Or I think I might have a sense for what that is. And if I just chased it down, I think I would know. My job is to equip you to the work of ministry. The elders here, we exist to equip you to the work of ministry. It's not the church's ministry because we're the church. So it's the church's ministry. God has called you to kick down doors on occasion. God has called you to break through the gates on occasion. God has called you to risk running that yellow light because there's something worth chasing. And so my job is to show you today that God has given you the green light to remind you that you have nothing to lose. And with nothing to lose, you can rely on the Father's grace like the prodigal and you can rely on the Master's mercy like the shrewd manager and you put those things together and it is the ultimate safety net. You have nothing to lose. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection this Easter, remember Easter last week? It means we have one life to live, but we have an everlasting eternity to live it. And so while we're on earth, our time is limited, but our time with God is eternal. And so all of the fears and all of the challenges that keep us locked in with that foot on the brake, when Jesus rises, that, that's gone. We have eternity with him. So you cannot mess this up. God has given you the green light. The question for the day is, what are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stories that illuminate our minds. Thank you for the freedom that comes with your grace and your mercy. God, I pray for each and every heart in here that harbors a dream, that harbors a calling and a mission. God, would you do the, uh, the work in this moment of freeing up that space, of removing the chains, of allowing us to walk into the thing you created us for, that every single person in this room, Father, has, has their friend, has their beauty, has their purpose, has their dream. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would leave in the glow of that green light. God, for those of us that are hesitant in the room, I pray that you would haunt us with that green light. 
that you would remind us that you have this, that you've got us, that you created us for a purpose and with passion. Father, would you wake each and every one of us up? Would you stir us inside and out to chase you with our days, to make the most of our lives, to really live? And in doing so, Father, might you get the glory. Might you be made more famous. May our dreams contribute to making you known. God, give us the courage to chase what you've put in front of us. Father, we lift this up in the saving name of Jesus. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.